Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Craig Forces, and uh, as promised in our Twitter feed, uh, Stephanie, we're back with a special series. And you're back too, Craig. This is just like old times. I'm so excited. This is something I've wanted to do for ages. It is a podcast series on major court cases at the Supreme Court that have really shaped the way national security law is defined, how it's applied, and what has driven certain legislative changes. What are the gaps that still exist today? We often say things like Stinchcomb, Garofoli. We had a whole thing on Wilson applications. I don't even know if that's one of the cases we're looking at. But basically, we always drop the names of, of these cases. And We're going to do a series on what these cases are, why they matter, and how they create this kind of national security sandwich of cases that maybe doesn't always taste very good and can maybe help inform people as to why certain things should be changed, why something should stay the same, or why just applying national security law and doing national security operations is just very complex. So, in in some nasty tasting sandwich, is today's topic, uh, which probably means that everyone stopped listening. But uh, maybe just to help frame how we're going to approach things. So while we're dealing with leading cases, we've tried to categorize these cases in logical sequence tied to charter rights and freedoms, because most of the cases, certainly the cases that arrive at the Supreme Court level, engage charter rights. And so our first topic today will be on Section 7 of the Charter, which we'll describe momentarily. But within Section 7 of the Charter, we're going to deal with subsets because Section 7 is a broad right that encompasses a number of different features. And and in fact, in support of this podcast series, Stephanie, I created a little what I call Charter Shorts, uh, basically a mini primer. In this case, the first mini primer is 10 minutes long. It's it's about Section 7 and the key features of Section 7, along with the key subdivisions in the case law under Section 7. And we'll attach the hyperlink to that little explainer video to the show notes for this podcast for those who are interested. But perhaps it's best to start with just describing Section 7 before we launch into the cases. And Section 7 uh, in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, is it reads, everyone, and we'll come back to why that word everyone is significant, has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And, and really that and should be really read as a disjunctive or. So life, liberty, or security of the person and the right not to be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. And so fundamental justice is a term whose content is not defined. It's an ambiguous expression. And as we'll see, it's come to mean different things in different contexts. So if one were to subdivide, Stephanie, Section 7, there are really three components. You have to be in everyone. Uh, And in practice, that means uh, a human being. So it does not reach... That's a pretty good bar. Right. So it doesn't read, but it could reach if it, if it said person, then under Canadian law, a person could include a corporation. So everyone is, is not a juridical person is not a corporation. Although there are cases where the law that said to infringe section seven reaches both human beings and corporations, the corporation can serve as a proxy, if you will, of the human being and challenging. So that's the first component. Second, at issue has to be life, liberty, or security of the person, which is what I call the trigger. So what triggers Section 7, it's where at issue is a potential jeopardy to life, liberty, or or security of the person. And then at issue thereafter is whether that uh, prejudice to life, liberty, and security of the person has been conducted in accordance with principles of fundamental justice, which is really about the content, what what comes with Section 7. And so we'll be talking about all three of these aspects going forward. But but just to, to give you a sense as to what the content of the principles of fundamental justice are, really they're subdivided into two broad categories. One is procedural fairness or procedural rights. And the second is what we'll call substantive rights, specific guarantees in terms of outcomes. And, and so in our conversation today, Stephanie, our focus is really going to be on the procedural aspects of fundamental justice. And within the procedural aspects, we'll be focusing on non-criminal cases. All right. So that's a lot. But if you watch the primer video, this is all set out schematically. <laughs> and hopefully it'll provide more content. Right. So, but I mean, look, the Oshawa version of this is that, look, you have a trigger and a content. You're supposed to have life, liberty, and or security of the person. It doesn't have to be indivisible. And then you have these kind of vague things called uh, principles of fundamental justice, which is where it all gets messy. 
And that's where the fun begins. Right. So the four cases that we're going to deal with, which again, deal with procedural rights that are part of fundamental justice in a non-criminal context. Those cases are Singh from 1985, Sharkawi from 2007, popularly known as Sharkawi 1, Sharkawi from 2008, popularly known as Sharkawi 2, and then Harkett from 2014. Again, all cases of the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, along the way, Stephanie will also talk about a few other cases that we won't deal with in detail today, but we'll, we'll mention them. One of them, Suresh, is something we'll deal with in a subsequent podcast where we talk about the substantive content of Section 7, because Suresh straddles both substance and process, and so we'll deal with it there. Okay, so perhaps the, the starting point is just to start with these cases. And so let's let's start with Singh. And so Singh, 1985, Supreme Court, one of the first major charter cases, certainly one of the first major charter cases under Section 7. And to this day, uh, probably the leading case in terms of the procedural guarantees that Section 7 provides as part of fundamental justice. And so let's talk about this case, Singh, from both the perspective of everyone, that is the expression in Section 7, everyone, from the perspective of life, liberty, and security of the person, and from the perspective of the principles of fundamental justice. So this was, as suggested, a refugee case. That issue was the adjudication of someone's refugee status. And as you may recall, while the law has varied over the years, the basic premise of refugee status is that someone is seeking asylum or refugee status, in this case in Canada, because of a well-founded fear of persecution based on enumerated grounds. So political perspectives, social or ethnic background, and the like. And so you have a well-founded fear of persecution. And so you've sought the protection of Canada. Now, that requires a determination as to whether, in fact, you have a well-founded fear. Uh, and so someone's got to make the decision. And there's got to be a process associated with making that decision. And in the early 1980s, the process involved uh, the then Minister of Immigration and their officials assessing the bona fides of refugee applicants in essentially a paper-based process. There was no prospect of any kind of oral hearing. And so there was no formal adjudication of the sort we would associate, say, with the quasi-judicial court-like process. And the issue before the Supreme Court was whether that was a fair process, paper-based assessment of one's bona fides as a refugee claimant. And so to address that issue, the Supreme Court really had to decide whether one had any rights uh, to a different process. The statute said, no, you didn't. Uh, and so you had to find some way to countermand, if you will, the statute, to conclude that the statute infringed on rights. And uh, the Supreme Court actually dealt with two different issues. It dealt with a, an older rights guaranteeing instrument called the Bill of Rights of 1960. And half of the court, three of the judges, three of the six judges, decided the issue simply on the Bill of Rights. The other three judges, in a decision penned by Justice Wilson, dealt with Section 7 of the Charter. And so we're going to focus on the Wilson decision because it's the one that's had this enduring uh, implication for Section 7 jurisprudence. So the issue then is, first of all, is Mr. Singh and others who were implicated in the case, is, are they an everyone for purposes of Section 7? And so what do you suspect, Stephanie? I mean, are they an everyone? So the way I understand the charter has been applied is you don't have to be a Canadian citizen in order for it to apply. You have to basically just be present in Canada to count as an everyone. So basically it can be a permanent resident, a tourist. It'd be interesting to know, what, what about someone in transit? Would someone in transit be considered everyone? I have to think they probably would because an airport, presumably, I mean, we've had these discussions before about the charter applying at the border and it hasn't always been applied in the most robust ways, but that would be an interesting question. But to my understanding, and of course, we all know that I went to the Oshawa School of Awesome Law, the, that this person would in fact be in everyone. Yeah, exactly. And you see this discussion sometimes uh, in Twitter and elsewhere that, look, they're not a Canadian citizen. How is it they have charter rights? And, and, Ultimately, there are a handful of charter rights that are limited to Canadian citizens. And so the right to vote, famously, in, in Section 3 of the Charter, is limited to citizens. And the mobility rights, the right to enter the country or leave the country, uh, is confined to citizens. And so non-citizens do not have a right to enter the country. But the other rights found in the Charter 
uh, are guaranteed for, in this case, everyone or sometimes every person. So they extend beyond citizenship. And that's important, right? Because simply because one is a citizen, or in this case, simply because one is a non-citizen, should not mean that the state, the Canadian state, can visit all sorts of rights-abusing activity on them, uh, certainly while those persons are amenable to Canadian law. So while they're within Canada, they're amenable to Canadian law. And so they, the Supreme Court, in this case, very clearly said, if you're amenable to Canadian law and you're present in Canada, then you are also rights-bearing. You have a Section 7 rights. And so Mr. Singh, in this case, uh, enjoyed Section 7 rights, regardless of citizenship status. Uh, the second issue was then whether Section 7 was triggered because at peril was life, liberty, or security of the person. And here it's important to understand what refugee determinations are about. They're about deciding whether someone has a bona fide fear of persecution, which means that if you get that wrong and you return the person to, say, their country of origin where they do have this fear of persecution, you are putting them in the path of peril. Now, of course, it wouldn't be the government of Canada that's persecuting them. And so if they were removed, say, to torture or other forms of maltreatment, it wouldn't be the government of Canada persecuting them. But for the Supreme Court here and elsewhere, that doesn't matter. Uh, and so here, the Supreme Court said that the security of the person principle in Section 7 must encompass freedom from the threat of physical punishment or suffering, as well as the freedom from such punishment itself. And in the video primer, Stephanie, you may recall that I, I have the image of dominoes. And so the, the way I like to think of this is if it's the government of Canada that starts the first domino of falling, then the fact that the final domino, the one that actually causes the harm, is engineered by a foreign government doesn't really matter. It's, it's about the peril that's visited on the person themselves by the causal link between the government of Canada's actions and the ultimate harm that befalls the person down the pipe. And so that same concern would apply not just in refugee cases, but also, for example, extradition. And so if you're extraditing someone to face a criminal proceeding in a country where, uh, for example, an issue is the death penalty, where they might be subjected to the death penalty, uh, that too would raise issues under Section 7, as well as other potential charter rights like Section 12, which protects against cruel and unusual treatment and punishment. So, and I just think that's an important point to make because I think this principle is going to come up time and time again, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, presumably this is one of the issues in Catter, which, you know, I don't want to jump the gun, but the, the fact is that was the government in some way responsible for the treatment of Omar Catter and the Supreme Court said, yes, it was, even though it couldn't force uh, a repatriation because foreign policy issues, but I'm sure you'll explain that to me at some later date. But also, this is a big issue when it comes to our relations with China, because China wants us to extradite all kinds of people back to China because they've been accused of corruption. And we, we say, uh, actually, no, we can't do that because we don't really trust your justice system, China. It, it doesn't really meet our, our standards. So this principle, I think, is, is, as you say, it's important in all kinds of, of national security contexts. Yeah. And with China, we don't actually have an extradition treaty with China. Uh, the extradition cases really arise with the United States. We're obviously shared border, uh, lots of prospects of American fugitives being in Canada, and it's still a death penalty jurisdiction, the United States is. Uh, and so that's where you have most of the death penalty jurisprudence. Where it rises in China is actually immigration removal. So even if the person is not being removed through an extradition proceeding, uh, it could well be that they're being removed through an immigration proceeding, and there too, the same concerns about the subsequent prospect of execution and or maltreatment also arise with China. And so, yes, you have you have case law in this area, especially from the federal court, about the extent to which, for example, Canada will accept undertakings, supplemental undertakings, or diplomatic assurances from China that they will not visit uh, maltreatment or death penalty on uh, a person that they're seeking uh, and we're removing under immigration law. And you're right. I mean, the, there, there has to be, as there should be some skepticism. If you have a state that does engage in torture, the fact that they provide a supplemental promise for something that is unequivocally illegal in international law and almost certainly illegal under their own domestic law, you have to wonder about the bona fides of that supplemental assurance. Here's an extra special promise, Canada, that we won't violate our domestic law or international law. And so the whole issue about the diplomatic assurances and the extent to which one can rely upon them is a matter which, not least the Supreme Court, 
offered its observations in a case called Suresh, which we'll talk about in a subsequent podcast, but also recurs in lower uh, courts, especially the federal court. All right. So, so for our purposes, we've moved past the trigger. The security of the person is triggered in this case because of the prospect of removal where Mr. Singh and colleagues might be subjected to maltreatment, persecution. And so the residual issue for us is, well, if security of the person is at issue, then Mr. Singh can only be deprived of security of the person if done so in accordance with fundamental justice. And so what does that mean in this context? Now, recall, Stephanie, that the the context here is the prospect of an adjudication process that's not really an adjudication so much as a paper-based assessment by officials. Does that meet standards of fundamental justice? And specifically, does that meet standards of procedural fairness? Now, there's no fixed menu as to what's required for procedural fairness. And procedural fairness, it comes, there are different terms for it. So the older term would have been natural justice. The Americans call it due process. Uh, We do as well to a certain extent. And all those concepts of, of basically procedural regularity are encompassed by fundamental justice. But there's not a fixed menu. The the actual procedural entitlement that one receives varies according to the circumstances. And as we'll see with Sharkawi, and as I mentioned in the primer, one of the most important considerations is the seriousness of the impact of the government action for the individual. And so as you might imagine, the prospect of being removed to possible persecution is a very serious implication for the individual. So you might expect fairly robust procedural guarantees. Here, the issue, well, really, there were two issues. The the first issue was, uh, should there be an oral hearing? Now, again, the Supreme Court's unprepared to say that there must always be an oral hearing when Section 7 is engaged, because the circumstances can vary. But in this case, there was really one important variable that drove the analysis beyond the seriousness of the implications for the individual. The minister And the ministerial officials trying to decide whether this person has a well-founded fear of persecution has to rely to some degree on the story that this person provides. And there's an assumption in our legal system that when you're trying to decide whether to believe someone or not, you're assessing their credibility. And in assessing their credibility, you really need to have them in front of you in an oral hearing and to discern from their mannerisms whether you believe them or not. And a paper-based hearing doesn't allow you to do that. Now, I, you know, Stephanie, as an aside here, I would say that we constantly overestimate our capacity to decide whether someone's telling the truth or not in terms of our ability to discern lying from the demeanor of individuals. That This is one of the conceits of the legal system. And there's some really interesting work that's been done that, that this is more myth than, than reality. But, it, but still, there, there's a valuable premise here that uh, if you're going to try to decide whether someone's telling the truth or not, you should at least give that person an opportunity to make their position known to you in person. And in this case, because there was no prospect at all under the statute as it then existed of an oral hearing, that rendered the the provision contrary to Section 7. It was procedurally unfair. On top of that, the Supreme Court also said that the claimant had to have an opportunity to make an effective challenge to the information that underlay the minister's decision, which suggested they needed some ability to know the case against them and to answer it, right? A right to be heard that included a sufficient degree of disclosure, which becomes then a very ripe issue in the next case we'll talk about. So for all those issues and for all those reasons, the Immigration Act as it then existed was unconstitutional. There was no serious consideration of whether it could be justified under what's known as Section 1 of the Charter. And Section 1 does, if you will, exonerate or allow limitations on charter rights uh, in circumstances where the court, according to a test that actually had not that been developed, uh, it was developed in a, in a subsequent case, can justify this is necessary and reasonable in a free and democratic society. The short answer to this, Stephanie, is there has never been a case in which a majority of the Supreme Court to date has allowed a Section 7 violation on Section 1 ground. Uh, right. The- so section, just as a reminder, so Section 1, yeah, again, it just says, you know, there are rights and you have these rights, but there are limits that are consistent with a free and democratic society. So not every right in the charter is sacrosanct. But I think that's an interesting point to make, that no one has ever found that 
these limits can actually impact your right to li- life, liberty, and security of the person. Well, lower courts have, but not the ma- not a majority of the Supreme Court. And and it, it, it's what about not- Amicus? <laughs> right, yeah, the mascot. Yes, I'm not, I'm not sure what Amicus is. We're leaving him out. Right, right. Uh, so, so just just to be clear, it's not that these rights aren't sacrosanct. So, it, it, these rights are sacrosanct, right? The charter rights are sacrosanct. It's just that there can be countervailing considerations. Uh, the so I think it's better to say that the rights aren't absolute, because there can be countervailing uh, considerations of the sort we'll talk about in Sharkawi, which mitigate the precise reach of the right in a given circumstance. And so that, section one is really about a balancing, if you will, of, of those countervailing considerations. The, the trouble with section seven, though, section seven allows its own internal balancing, right? So, so to say, for example, that the procedure that one's entitled to under fundamental justice varies according to the circumstances, that allows the court to embed countervailing circumstances right in the fundamental justice analysis. And so subsequently to turn around and say, notwithstanding that kind of internal balancing, there's a supplemental section one uh, co- series of considerations. Uh, it, it really hasn't worked logically, uh, although the court has held open the prospect section one could apply uh, as it has in Sharkawi, which we'll talk about now. But conceptually, it's less necessary as kind of a mitigating spigot, if you will, for section seven than it would be for other rights which don't have that sort of internal balancing feature. And presumably, this is a good thing because. I would think in something dealing with life, liberty, security, the person only wants section one as like a very, very, very serious emergency break. And the court has largely said that, no, this is not the case, but perhaps we can talk more about this with Charkawi one or two. Yeah. One, we'll start with one, 2007. Number right, one. So okay. Let's, let's, this is, a, this is right. I think one of the things that all these cases have in common is that they are immigration cases, but that's not necessarily all the Section 7 cases that are out there. But the thing that all these cases we're talking about today have in common is the impact that they had on national security. So just just to set up Sharkawi 1, uh, we've now fast forwarded to 2007. And yes, while it's an immigration case, keep in mind that not, not all immigration cases are equal, right? So uh, there are different immigration measures and they have different implications for and the individuals affected. So we talked about saying in that issue was refugee status and removal to possible persecution. With the three other cases we're going to talk about today, they're all what are known as security certificate cases. And so the security certificate regime, reasonably famous in the sense that it's been around since what, 1992. And effectively what it allows is ministers to designate as inadmissible on security grounds or serious criminality, and then a few other headings an individual, and once they're designated as uh, inadmissible on these grounds, the federal court adjudicates whether that designation is reasonable. And if it's reasonable, that's uh, effectively a deportation order and the person is removed. Now, pending that adjudication and removal, the person can be detained, right? So there's a detention aspect to it. And actually, at the time with Sharkawi 1, the detention was, I believe, was automatic at that time. And the other aspect is the adjudication of the person's security certificate, that is the reasonableness assessment by the federal court, can rely on classified information because it can be held in camera and ex parte. In camera means in the exclusion of the public, and ex parte means with the exclusion of the interested party themselves, in this case, Mr. Sharkawi. So Leah West and I call this a closed material proceeding in the sense it's closed to the public and also secret material is used as part of the proceeding. Uh, And so that right away raises concerns about fairness in the sense that the person's fate is being determined behind closed doors on the basis of information they never see. Now, there had been some prior treatment of this fairness issue in earlier Supreme Court cases. And so a case called Chiarelli from 1992, there the Supreme Court was equivocal on whether Section 7 even applied. It left the question un- answered. It suggested that perhaps, but it didn't answer it definitively. In Suresh in 2002, which again is a case we'll talk about in a subsequent podcast, that was a case in which that issue was a security certificate issued because the a person was uh, viewed as being uh, implicated in terrorism, in this case, the LTTE in Sri Lanka. And there, the Supreme Court did conclude that Section 7 did apply. And so by the time we get to Sharkawi 1, it's pretty clear that Section 7 should apply to security certificate cases. But the Supreme Court goes on and at considerable length talks about why that is. And so we're, we're talking about that trigger issue, right? Life, liberty, or security of the person, is it engaged? And so 
Stephanie, here with the Sharkawi case, and there were at the time four other cases that involved individuals who were named under security certificates because they were viewed as being tied to terrorism. The issue of whether Section 7 is triggered or not is an interesting one because there are a number of different bases to conclude that it should be triggered, one of which is the fact that the person is detained pending removal. That's a liberty interest, right? And if the removal is protracted, then they're detained for a very long time. And in fact, that was very much the case with the security certificate system involving these five individuals. But the other issue is, what do you suppose the implications of the government of Canada saying, we want to remove this person to their country of origin because they're a member of a terrorist group. And by that way, that terrorist group is almost always a terrorist group that opposes the government in power in that country of origin. What do you suppose, what sort of jeopardy might that person now face if removed? So obviously this person um, going to their home country and just for the sake of argument, this country does not have a, a stellar human rights record that this person will likely be arrested, put in conditions that would amount to torture, in, in, at least from a, a Canadian perspective, and therefore his security of the person, life and liberty, would, in this case, all three would probably be in jeopardy. Yeah, precisely. Do I have that right? Yeah, yes. well, exactly. Okay. So, so, you know, security certificates had been used by that point. Yes, like in Suresh, they were used in a couple of cases where an issue was uh, allegations by the minister that the person was associated with terrorism. They had also been used for illegals, that is, persons who had assumed the identity of Canadian nationals on behalf of, well, Russian security services, you know, so the, the American scenario from the TV program. A as you might imagine, the consequences of being removed because you're an illegal back to the embrace of the SVR or whatever it was at the time, versus the prospect of being removed uh, to your country of origin because you're part of a terrorist movement that opposes the government in power, those are quite different. And so in past security certificate cases, perhaps there wasn't the same incentive on the part of persons being removed to test the bounds of Section 7 rights and the scope of procedural entitlements and procedural rights at issue in security certificates. That really changed, though, with these five cases from the early 2000s. Uh, the, and the one that ended up at the Supreme Court was Mr. Sharkawi's case. They had a strong incentive to test every nook and cranny of the security certificate process uh, because they were not being removed to you know, a welcoming jurisdiction. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So... In this case, the Supreme Court said, for the reasons you've described, Stephanie, that the, the, the Section 7 entitlement is, is triggered. And so then the issue is, what does fundamental justice uh, require? And the Supreme Court was very clear that, look, this is not a criminal proceeding. It's what we would call an administrative proceeding. But nevertheless, Section 7 fundamental justice, the content is not about pigeonholing. We don't really care whether we call it criminal or we call it administrative. Rather, the issue is the seriousness among other things, the seriousness of the implications for the individual. And so the greater the effects, in this case, on the life, liberty, or security of the person of the individual, the greater the need for procedural protections. And, and here, as we've suggested, the consequences were potentially quite dire. And in fact, either in this case or in Sharkawi 2, I, I don't recall which, the Supreme Court even suggested that the consequences were more dire than what could be visited on the person under a criminal proceeding in Canada. If you are prosecuted and, and then convicted and incarcerated in Canada, you're not subjected thereafter to a torture in, in some dark cell in the basement of the security service, right? And so the potential consequences are even more dire than might arise in a criminal proceeding in Canada. And so the issue then is, well, if that's the case, what does procedural fairness really require here in a circumstance where information is withheld from the individual on security grounds? right? It's classified for a reason. So the Supreme Court said at, at base, there are really two requirements. You need to have a hearing in which the person has a right to know the case and to answer it. And you need a hearing in front of an independent and impartial decision maker. Now, the federal court, there was actually some dispute over this, but the view was that the federal court was not put in an invidious position in terms of adjudicating. This Sorry, can you just explain what that invidious position, what do you mean by that? So the federal court was not put in a position where judicial independence was compromised by virtue ah. of its role in this case, it was right. it still was in a position to adjudicate the matter fairly. So everything then turned on whether the hearing uh, was fair because of the withholding of classified information. And the Supreme Court acknowledged that there's a, there's a balance here that has to be exercised. There's a societal interest in classification. There are bona fide reasons why information is classified, not least protecting sources. 
right? And so one of the classic concerns in terms of adjudication is if you reveal the identity of the source or you provide information that might reveal the identity of the source that jeopardizes the the source's life, liberty, and security of the person right now, I, I you know, puts them in peril. And so at issue really is trying to reconcile two things that are very difficult to reconcile. The bona fide reasons why the state may want to withhold information and then the interest that the individual has and the most information available so that they can defend their interests in a fair adjudication. So the Supreme Court says, look, there's not going to be a perfect way of reconciling these things. And so you're really looking for substantial substitute. You're looking for ways where you can do your best to square that proverbial circle. I was because I was going to ask you, Craig, I guess the first thing I thought of when, when you said this was, I guess, oh, Section 38 Canada Evidence Act, which is an old friend of the podcast. But this isn't a criminal procedure. So would that still apply? Because yeah. that that we've talked about this before, where you have to have basically have a whole separate trial involving the kind of classified information on the case and what should be released. And so that the, the case can go forward. Yeah. So the, the interesting thing is, so sure, if the government wanted to protect information from disclosure, uh, let's say it wasn't available under the immigration law, the immigration law has its own sort of way of protecting the information, but let's assume that wasn't there. Under Section 38, if you protect information from disclosure government, you can't turn around and ever use that information in the proceedings. So it's a shield, but not a sword. And so let's say your case is built on classified information. And to resist disclosure, you use a Section 38 uh, proceeding and you're successful. And the court says, you don't have to disclose. This is a privileged national security confidential information under Section 38. Well, fine, you've protected the information from disclosure, but you can't use thereafter that information to prove your case, which means that if your case is built on this information, it craters, right? And so the what's distinct about this proceeding in the immigration context, but also, by the way, almost identical provisions are found in other contexts, not least the terrorism listing provisions under the criminal code, where the government can use classified information uh, and preserve it from disclosure, while at the same time using it to prove its case. The, the unique aspect about these cases, as opposed to Section 38, is that, again, you can use it both as a shield and a sword. You can protect the information from disclosure, and you can also use the information in a closed proceeding in the absence of the interested party to prove your case. Well, the Supreme Court in Sharkawi said, because Section 7 is engaged, and so this person has a right to fundamental justice, fundamental justice is not, is not satisfied with a system in which this person is excluded from this information. Nevertheless, the Supreme Court said there could be a Section 1 justification. Uh, you could probably justify, because of the national security interest, this on a Section 1 basis, because preserving confidentiality could be the sort of thing that's appropriate in a free and democratic society. But on the facts in this case, the government ha- was unable to prove that because the immigration law was not what we call minimally impairing. It, th- there were less rights in- intrusive, less rights infringing ways in which to square the proverbial circle, and the government never did it. And the Supreme Court used some examples. So, for example, they could have used special advocates like the UK was using. And there's a whole long history about the origins of special advocates, by the way. I don't know if we're interested in getting into that. But the Supreme Court said, hey, look, the UK is using special advocates as a proxy for the person in closed hearings. The government could have done that. The government could have used the measure that had been used in the Air India trial, the, the one sort of major prosecution we had uh, stemming from the Air India bombing, in which the defense counsel was effectively read into the secret information, but then did not share that secret information with their client. There was the model that was used by what was then the Security Intelligence Review Committee, CERC, in which uh, counsel for CERC would have access to all the information and in the closed proceeding would effectively serve as a I don't want to say proxy in challenging the government's case, but at least test the government's case. So there are all these different prospects that were open to the government, none of which had been embedded in the immigration law, and therefore government loses the case. So that's Sharkawi one. Bad trombone. Right. So what happens? Well, the security certificate system is constitutionally infirm. So the government responds and parliament enacts what's known as Bill C-3, in, I believe it was 2008 by the time it was done, which actually accepts the invitation of the Supreme Court to incorporate one of these proxies. In this case, a special advocate system. And we'll come back to that in a second. But at the same time as C3 is in germination, there's a second Sharkawi case, Sharkawi 2 in 2008. 
And this is actually a collateral issue that arises in the security certificate context. As we've suggested, security certificates rely on classified information coming from CSIS. And in the Sharkawi case, part of this information was interviews that officers had had with Sharkawi. And those officers then had prepared summaries from their notes. And their notes and any recording of the interviews were destroyed as per CSIS's then existing policy. And CSIS had a policy where it would eliminate the raw material in part because uh, both of the origin story of CSIS, right? So the origin story of CSIS was the RCMP Security Service, which by its termination date had accumulated a mass of files on Canadians. And so the concern I believe was, well, it was over 800,000 files, in fact. Yeah. And so the, the idea of there being an agency that was constantly accumulating information on individuals was anathema. And so CSIS's policy was a little bit different than the RCMP security services, and it would ha- have a retention policy where uh, materials were uh, destroyed uh, according to a, a then existing policy. The issue also was that, that CSIS had interpreted the most important provision in the CSIS Act Section 12 which gives it its authority to investigate threats to the Security of Canada, had interpreted Section 12 as obliging the sort of periodic culling. Uh, and Section 12, it's a bit collateral to our conversation about sec- Section 7 of the Charter, but Section 12 says that CSIS may collect to the extent that it is strictly necessary and analyze and retain information and intelligence. So that provision strictly necessary is really important. It, in the structure of Section 12, clearly qualifies investigation. The investigation and the collection of information is to the extent strictly necessary. But CSIS had also construed strictly necessary as also applying to analyze and retain. The Supreme Court, though, when the Sharkawi 2 case gets to the Supreme Court, says, no, 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 you're wrong. You're wrong. Uh, first, Section 7, to meet Section 7, you have to disclose information that goes beyond mere summaries, at least to the ministers and the judges. And more than that, you've misread Section 12. And we think Section 12 requires you to retain your operational notes when conducting investigations that are not of a general nature. And so when you're conducting an investigation that targets particular individuals or groups, and where you may have to pass on that information to external authorities, like a court, you got to keep them. You got to keep this material. This caught the service by surprise. And in fact, thereafter, the then director of the service criticized this approach of the Supreme Court by suggesting now you've put us back in the business of retaining information. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was there, there was a lot of discussion about, well, now we have to be East Germany. Like right. they, they, they doesn't want to keep information on people forever. They, they really don't. But that's effectively what the courts have, have mandated. Yeah, and, and you know, sort of this fine distinction. Well, you keep you have to keep your operational notes when conducting investigations that are not of a general nature. So, is that enough precision that the service could really distinguish between when it has to keep its notes and when it doesn't? And arguably, you might default to keeping more rather than less, right? So, from a civil liberties perspective, it's a sword that cuts both ways. There's a privacy implication, right, about retaining this information, but there's also a due process or a procedural fairness implication in circumstances where then the service turns around and uses the fruits of this investigative labor in the form of summaries in a proceeding and that the individual then doesn't have access to the raw material. Uh, And so that was a collateral dispute uh, that arose in the Sharkawi 2 case. Now, in the end, it didn't have much implications because uh, the Supreme Court said, well, in this case, the interview notes were really with Mr. Sharkawi himself, and he's in a position to know what was said. But it, it had these sort of more uh, important implications generally for the services practices because of the views on retention. And again, tied to this idea about Section 7 of the Charter and what it dictates and requires in circumstances where one's life, liberty, or security of the person's interests are in play. Okay, so that's Sharkawi 2. So we have Harkat. Last case, Harkat, 2014. A, right, another case dealing with the Immigration Refugee Protection Act. Right, and so another security certificate case. Basically, again, it's it's another trip up to the Supreme Court about the constitutionality of the security certificate process. This time, the security certificate process post C3. And so now we've got a special advocate regime in place. And so this is the new rebooted security certificate 
system that was created after the Sharkawi one case. And so this is a, a testing as to whether the government got it right. And, and really, there had been a couple of controversies that germinated uh, and led to the Harkett case. The first was, look, there's still not going to be full disclosure to the named person. The security certificate regime still allows the use of classified information. And while the named person, the individual affected, may get a sanitized summary, they're still not going to get the full roster of information. And so, again, the issue is whether the limitations on disclosure, whether they're constitutionally sound, remains a live issue by the time we get to Harkat. And then a related issue was the actual functions of the special advocate. And so the special advocate, it's worth just rehearsing what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to go into the closed hearing and do really two things, press for the disclosure of more information. And so test the government's justification for withholding information from the named person. And also then in circumstances where there's actually adjudication on the merits with classified information to really represent the interests of the named person and to test the quality and caliber and credibility of that information in an adversarial setting where they effectively serve as a proxy in terms of raising doubts about the viability of that information. So they really perform two functions. Now, of course, if you're doing that, especially the second function, it would be very helpful if you knew about the named person and their position. But of course, you can't get the classified information, turn around to the named person and say, hey, this is what the government's saying about you. You know, What are your views? Because then it's no longer classified information. It sort of vitiates the very notion of a closed hearing. And so the security certificate regime puts strictures on the ability of the special advocate to continue to communicate with the named person after they've seen the classified information. And the government clearly feared that the special advocate would spill a bean, even though there's very strong obligations on them not to, not least they'd go to jail under the Security of Information Act. But the government was of the view that it, the risk was too high. And so they put this additional fetter on the special advocates continuing to communicate with the named person once they've seen the classified information. There is a stop uh, gap, though. There's a spigot. There's a, an override. And the court retains the discretion to allow the continued uh, communication subject to uh, court supervision effectively. So by the time this gets to Harcut, then the two issues are, there's not full disclosure to the named person. Is that violating Section 7? And are there constraints on continued communication by the special advocate to the named person? And is that constitutional under Section 7? And the Supreme Court said, no, everything's okay here. The judge has an obligation statutorily to keep the person as reasonably informed of the case against them as possible. And that means that they must receive enough information that they can give meaningful instructions to their lawyers and also provide meaningful guidance to the special advocates. And also, the government can only withhold information where there's a serious risk of injury to national security or the safety of a person. And the judge has to be skeptical of that claim. This is immediate post arar and the Supreme Court is clearly alive to the issue of overclaiming on national security grounds in terms of confidentiality. And so the Supreme Court instructs federal court judges to be skeptical of national security confidentiality claims. But so long as the judge is skeptical and so long as they provide sufficient disclosure that the person is reasonably informed, then that's fine. Uh, it's, it's not that the person's entitled to full disclosure. They just have to be reasonably informed. And then in terms of the communication restrictions on special advocates, the fact that that can be lifted by the judge is enough of a safeguard. And more than that, and this was really important, the Supreme Court instructed the federal court judges to be liberal in terms of authorizing these communications and only deny continued communication where the minister proves that there was a real risk of injurious disclosure. You can't just assume that the special advocate is going to spill a bean. You have to actually uh, demonstrate on a balance of probabilities that there'll be serious risk of injurious disclosure. Now, as a collateral issue, Stephanie, there was also here adjudication of what's known as class privilege for CSIS sources. And so CSIS had claimed that CSIS source identity was automatically privileged in Canadian law in terms of- In the not, same way as police officers. Right, as, as police informants. Right. And, and the Supreme Court said, no, 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 there's no such thing as a class privilege. In the wake of Harcut, really two things happened. First, the, the parliament legislated an emphatic class privilege for source identity in 2015 in a bill called C44 and created what's known as 18.1 of the CSIS Act. 
But more than that, also, now the government also thought it would try to turn the screws a little bit on the special advocate system. And in Bill C-51 in 2015, uh, also put a, a bit of a fetter on the ability of the special advocates to have access to information. The government would now decide what's relevant for the special advocates to see. And that was viewed as an undue constraint on special advocates and, and what they could see that were within the files of, the, of CSIS. Uh, that supplemental constraint imposed in 2015 has, it remains in place and has never been tested, at least never tested in a decision that's been rendered public. And so there's a, a residual question mark about the constitutionality of the security certificate system because of that supplemental change that was made in 2015. But otherwise, Harkat had sort of cleared it, greenlighted it. The government, though, has stopped using it. <laughs> uh, it stopped using security certificates, at least in terrorism cases. And I believe, I don't think it's used it in any other case, uh, because what was supposed to be an expeditious process involving the minister signing off and a fairly expedited process in front of the federal court turned into an odyssey. And so the government has, to the extent it's using immigration measures to remove people on security grounds, has resorted to regular immigration proceedings in front of immigration adjudicators, where by the way, there's still the prospect of using classified information and special advocates, but under a slightly different uh, process. And so it just goes to show like there was this really early attempt to use immigration law as a way to solve a lot of problems associated with the war on terror. And that really, I think, hasn't worked out particularly well. And all these cases perhaps go to go to show that just what are the what are the actual problems in doing so in terms of just the practicalities of it, but also in terms of of, of threats to charter defined rights and freedoms. Well, yeah, and the immigration security certificate has just not worked as an anti-terrorism tool. The, the, the government has not successfully removed uh, any of the individuals. Uh, its record in actually defending its security certificate conclusions has been mixed. Uh, and unanswered at this point is whether they could ever remove someone where at risk was the prospect of torture. That, that's a supplemental Section 7 issue, which we'll talk about when we talk about Suresh. So this has been entirely a conversation about whether it's a fair procedure, but then there's a supplemental question as to whether, even if it's a fair procedure, whether you can actually remove someone where there's a serious prospect of torture upon removal. Well, uh, alert, no. Well, I mean, I think the answer is no. The Supreme Court left the door open a crack in Suresh, but I think that crack has subsequently been retrofitted. Uh, and so we can talk about whether that's the case when we talk about Suresh in a subsequent podcast. So I guess the takeaway on this conversation is to see how, first of all, that Section 7, how it's triggered, and then how the procedural assumptions in Section 7, while not a fixed menu, when the consequences are serious, can be quite demanding on the government, and then how these cases build one on the other, and they have their own internal logic, if you will. And so if one starts, say, with Harkin and tries to sort of roll back the logic, it looks perhaps like it, maybe the findings are arbitrary, but they incrementally build from Singh through a sequence of cases and you arrive at the conclusions in Harkat. And also the impact that it's had on just, again, the way we are using some of our uh, powers in the national security space. Like I said, I, I do recall there was a lot of uncomfortableness with having to just keep absolutely everything on file for eternity as a part of some of these decisions. But that's that's procedural fairness, I guess. I guess my last question for you, Craig, is in the video that I watched, which again, I would encourage all listeners to watch because it's a really it's a really good breakdown of, of Section 7, to the extent that administrative law is a factor here. Yeah. Um, is, is when, we, when you're talking procedural fairness are in, in substantial guarantees, this is the admin law aspect of Section 7? Uh, yes. Yes, to a degree. What happens typically in these cases is Section 7 overlaps with what's known as administrative law, which is really the body of law that guards the conducts of the executive branch to ensure the executive branch is not usurping authorities and, and assuming powers it doesn't have. So there's a procedural and a substantive aspect to administrative law. And, and they do certainly on the procedural side overlap quite dramatically with section seven procedural entitlements under fundamental justice. Uh, but the, in a case like say Singh and thereafter in the Sharkawi cases, administrative law procedural fairness was useless because procedural fairness and administrative law is a common law construct. It's a product of the jurisprudence of the common law courts. And in our system, if parliament enacts a statute that displaces a common law principle and overrides a common law principle, the statute prevails. 
And so to the extent that, say, in Singh, the immigration law at that time said, no oral hearing for you, and that was embedded in a statute, you can't use a common law principle of procedural fairness to attack a statute. You have to find something that can prevail against a statute. And so the Charter of Rights and Freedoms prevails against a contrary statute, right? If it violates, infringes, Section 7 is not justified under Section 1, then the statute statutory provision fails. And so while the the procedural right in question an oral hearing can arise in both a common law and a constitutional context, the common law simply was unavailable because of the of the fact that this was a challenge to a statutory provision. And so you had to rely on the charter or also in saying this older instrument called the Canadian Bill of Rights, which no one ever talks about, but I insist in teaching in administrative law because I think it's still got life in it. Um, it's a little bit like the dead parrot sketch. It's not quite pining for the fjords yet. I think what we're doing is we're building an Avengers style universe of, of national security cases that hopefully our listeners can, can turn to in order, again, to understand why national security law is applied the way it is. And again, why we have some of these difficulties in our national security operations today. Great. So is that it? Yes, that's it. And so we'll be back with the next one. I think next time we'll talk about section seven procedural entitlements in a criminal context, and we won't deal with all of them, but I think we'll focus on the disclosure obligations in criminal law, most famously the Stinchcomb case, which we talk about all the time in discussions about intelligence to evidence. You make that sound so exciting, Craig. Well, I do my best. All right. (laughs) Thanks very much, everyone. Glad you're back. Cheers.